Hey guys, welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Medicus. I'm Josh, and today my co-host is Mara. Hello, everybody. In this episode, Mara and I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Greg Ozark. Dr. Ozark is a professor in internal medicine and pediatrics. He has an impressive background that I'm going to let him share, but for the curious, Dr. Ozark served as program director for combined internal medicine and pediatrics from 1999 to 2014, at which point he assumed the role of vice president of graduate medical education. Stay tuned to hear us discuss different strategies on how to become a resilient physician. Dr. Ozark shares his insights into how self-reflection, developing grit, choosing the right program, and incorporating faith and service into his practice have helped him avoid burnout. With that said, here's Dr. Greg Ozark. To start off, can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about like your background? Sure. Uh, I was born in Chicago area. Um, I went to St. Xavier uh, College, which is over on 103rd and Pulaski. I went to medical school here at Stretch. I started in 1990, uh, so I've been here probably longer than both of you have been alive. <laughs> I did a residency training program and a combined program for internal medicine and pediatrics. I became program director from that program uh, in 1999 and stayed program director there for uh, 15 years and then transitioned out of that program and uh, an opportunity came up in the graduate medical education office to work with our other residency programs. So I went from having uh, the one program with the 16 trainees to having about 65 programs and about uh, 700 trainees oh, wow. um, to be involved in. And um, I've been doing that since 2014. I work in an office with some amazing coworkers uh, in running uh, that office. And then uh, I have uh, patients that I see uh, for my primary care practice for internal medicine and pediatrics. Uh, over in Burr Ridge. Um, and then I also see patients here in a resident clinic on Thursdays, and then I attend on service, uh, inpatient service uh, for the internal medicine or pediatrics uh, throughout the year. So you're a little bit busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, we're really grateful that you could make the time to come in and, sure. and, and do this with us. So to start, so there are so many topics that I really was excited to, to, to you know dive in and unpack with you. But to start off, I wanted to we had multiple people that recommended you to us and it was pretty interesting because every single time that someone recommended you they said okay he's fantastic he's you know can talk about this and this and this but they always kind of circled back and also mentioned that disney and martial arts were something that was like very characteristic of you and so i I thought it would be fun maybe we can start with that top three disney movies what do you got (laughs) Uh, I had to give that one some thought. Um, I think the three that I came up with were uh, Hercules, Mulan, and Brave. Brave. Mm. Wow. Kind of two older ones and then a newer one. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of those. I like those. Mm-hmm. Okay. Martial arts. So this is something that was kind of interesting to me. So, again, this was something that kind of almost became a little bit synonymous with kind of your identity. Tell us about that for a sec. Uh, I was trying to figure out where that kind of started. So grew up uh, sort of in the genre of uh, Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris movies and always kind of liked it throughout uh, grade school and high school and then got into it uh, in college for a number of years and then drifted away during residency and stuff and then ended up coming back to it about um, 15, 20 years ago as well. Uh, always admired sort of the self-discipline of it, um, always admired uh, the individualness of it the mental aspects of it and sort of learning to understand sort of a little bit about who you are, what your strengths and weaknesses are, and how you can best utilize that 
uh, with your with your art. There's a there's definitely sort of a life lesson and a lot of spirituality that goes along with martial arts too, which I kind of like. Mm-hmm. How do you incorporate that in your life now? Do you still practice just on a weekly basis? Uh, yeah, I still train a couple days a week formally, and then I practice on my own. I had been involved with teaching for a while, and then. My son got old enough to be in the adult class with me now, so he's uh, he's with me now. So I don't teach those classes anymore. But uh, formal, one of the biggest secrets to how to keep something in your life is you have to schedule it. So mm-hmm. once you schedule something, it's there and you'll do it. Right. It's got to be really special to share it with your son too. Yeah, my daughter was in it for a long time as well, and then she stopped doing it probably her sophomore year in high school, and then uh, he is in eighth grade now, so he's still continuing. That's awesome. Is there any overlap in terms of what you've been able to pull from martial arts and incorporate into practice, like with medicine or anything like that? So one of my senseis has taught me sort of a few important lessons. And I think one of them that he uses a lot is the phrase, wherever you are, be there. Mm. And I think that's uh, been a really good life lesson. I think that it translates itself to every aspect. Like when you're at work, be at work. Don't be on your social media presence or your Facebook. When you're with your family, be with your family, but don't be checking your electronic medical record and find out what's going on with your patients. When you're in church, actually be in church and not think about what you need to be doing after church. Yeah, obviously with the martial art, it applies to when you're doing that particular move or that particular sequence, be present in each individual part of it, not thinking about the next one. Mm-hmm. But I think it pertains a lot to life as well. Yeah, it's a good perspective. That's something that I've found also being involved with musical things. So mm-hmm. when I am playing in an orchestra, like when I'm there, I'm in this one piece of music at this one measure, and I have to be focused at this one time. And it's everyone's there together. And, and I really, for that time that I'm there, have to put aside everything else that I have done before in that day and I need to do after it because you really can't. You're focused on that one thing. And, right. it, and yeah, it's, it's important to carry that perspective into other parts of your life too. Do you think that with martial arts, is it more of a more of like a catharsis type thing? Is it more of a, a thing that's trying to kind of foster creativity and just have kind of a, another element to, you know, you as a person? Or the other idea that I keep coming back to is uh, Angela Duckworth did the, just wrote this book about grit. And I keep thinking that, that, you know, this is really something that needs to be kind of incorporated to, to our lives, to have these passion projects that kind of help you pursue something above and beyond kind of work or you know, just normal, average, everyday life activities. Is that the case for you? Or I think anything you dedicate yourself to outside of work is A, something you should do, and B, gives you that opportunity to sort of push yourself and develop grit. So whether it be in music or whether it be in anything else that you do, um, if you're dedicated to it and you work at it, it's an outlet outside of uh, your, your daily work. And that's an important part of sort of maintaining yourself um, and maintaining your own resiliency and wellness. Yeah, yeah. And just happens to be that it works out. Right. Martial arts and Disney for me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I want to go back to something you said that you have been around at Loyola since almost 1990. So you've got to have a pretty great perspective on this place and how it's changed since you were a student here. And why did you decide to stay here for that long? So I think the thing that Loyola has always uh, offered to its students and its residents and faculty um, is the opportunity for putting your education uh, into action with regards to service. And service is an important aspect, I think, also for my own individual wellness and resiliency in that it, um, when you sort of step out of yourself, you stop thinking so much about your own problems and you see what else is out there. And it helps keep your perspective a lot more broad so that you don't uh, dwell in a lot of the little things that bog everybody down and everyone's got things in their life. But when you get out of yourself every once in a while, it really helps you keep awareness of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. 
And I think Loyola does a good job with that. And the other nice thing I think about it, too, is that it does allow regular conversations to occur about faith and inclusion with faith, number one, with different faith backgrounds, but not a perceived awkwardness of having those conversations. I think people here enjoy talking about their faith, and it's part of who they are and their identity as a physician. And uh, it's nice to have an an environment that allows that to be accepted and encouraged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one thing that kind of attracted me to Loyola as well. I love we treat the person, and it's very much, you know, incorporating spirituality, religious aspects of everything. And I do find that when, you know, you're engaging with patients, um, we, we have those OSCEs, right? And I have friends who are in other medical schools around here in Chicago, and, you know, they talk about their OSCEs. And one of the questions that we end up invariably asking is, you know, do you have some form of uh, support system that could be, in, you know, you know, religion or spirituality or, or what have you. And for my my uh, friends, that's like a very weird thing to ask. <laughs> like, it's very strange. But I do think that patients really, when you ask them that, it definitely kind of opens up this new, uh, very humane perspective. And they, they realize that they can relate to you, that there's, you know, there's more to it. So I, I am very appreciative of that. Yeah, it turns them into a person rather than somebody who just does a list of symptoms. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, I mean... It is an important aspect that I, I do think is overlooked a lot. But. Do you think the mission is something that students really should consider when choosing which medical school to go to, or what other aspects do you think students should be considering? So it's a, obviously it's a personal thing that needs to be thought carefully about. I think the danger of um, medicine, and I know it's something that you guys want to talk about later too, but uh, is with regards to physician wellness and physician burnout. And I think that having a mission whether it be a faith mission or an altruistic mission or whatever it is, uh, at the center of why you do what you do uh, allows you to maintain yourself. Because I joke around with what I say is that, you know, medicine is kind of a lousy job. It's a fantastic profession. It's a fantastic career. But there's a lot of other jobs out there that are easier to do, um, that aren't as emotionally draining, uh, that aren't as time-consuming. And um, I think when you see your calling in medicine as a calling as a profession as a mission um, it allows you to tap into a well that uh, that typically stays pretty full I think that if you're constantly just relying on yourself to punch a clock or show up and then leave each day eventually that becomes a grind no matter what you do but if you see a bigger picture for why you're doing these things I think a lot of times that that really does motivate you and keep you uh, engaged in what you're doing mm-hmm. maybe we can transition to kind of resiliency right now because uh, this is definitely something that was one of the not the only reason why we want to have you on there but definitely one of the the top reasons so maybe just to kind of share a quick story I my first shadowing experience was with a physician who was in internal medicine and I was really excited I hopped in you know and tried to do as much as I could as someone who knows nothing right but this physician it was really interesting it kind of gave me a very jaded perspective because I finished my my shadowing experience and uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask her a couple of questions like, okay, if you could do it all over again, would you still do medicine? Would you do, you know, would you change anything? This physician, granted her circumstances may have been a little bit different, but for her, she said, no, I, I wouldn't. And she was very, uh, very critical about medicine. And it, to be honest with you, it, it kind of shook me a little bit. And I, at the time, I didn't know that this was kind of a, a, a concept that's been a very hot topic for medicine that of burnout. And so we really wanted to kind of hop into this and 
what do you think is kind of the, the biggest factors that are contributing to this? What do you think is really driving us? And, and I, I have some ideas. I'd love to like pick your brain on it to see what you think, if, if this is maybe kind of a, a thing or not. But what are your kind of thoughts? I think burnout is one of those things that's really very complicated and very detailed and very individual in how people approach it and how they keep um, themselves well uh, in whatever they do. I think that uh, there's a burnout to talking about burnout. I think the word gets overused a lot <laughs> yeah. um, to be synonymous with things like stress or feeling anxious or overwhelmed, but that's not burnout. Burnout's when you just stop caring um, and you're just generally disengaged uh, with what you do. And that's a lot of times a true medical emergency. I mean, those people sometimes are abusing substances or the depressed. So I think that uh, people need to be careful because there's a continuum for burnout that I think that we're sort of predisposed to in medicine. I think that, you know, medicine sort of starts, or burnout, the spectrum of burnout sort of starts with the desire to prove yourself and to make yourself better each day and always to be better than you were the day before. The problem is you're also with a lot of people who also have similar drives. You might have been the smartest person in your high school class or grade school class, but now you're with all of the smartest people in their high school class or grade school classes. And you lose a little bit of that identity, so you have to keep pushing yourself a little bit harder. The problem with doing that is ultimately there still only are 24 hours in a day, and I've really tried to find additional ones by using caffeine or Diet Mountain Dew <laughs> or whatever else, but there really are only still 24. And I think that that compulsion to prove yourself, that um, that desire to be better, can lead to doing so at the expense of your own uh, personal wellness and resilience area. You start to isolate yourself. You start to become less engaged with uh, things that sort of kept you uh, an individual or healthy prior to going into medicine. And part of you starts to feel bitter and angry about that. Uh, so you start to look at everything sort of as a personal attack. A patient showing up late is a personal attack. Uh, a patient waking you in the middle of the night with a phone call or the nurse waking you for someone who's got chest pain becomes a personal attack against you. And you sort of lose that perspective that, that it's not about you, uh, that it's about taking care of patients. And I think a lot of people get caught up with not realizing that. So they think that everything is against them and they have backed themselves so much into a corner with their own individual growth and maintaining their own well-being that that they become isolated. Uh, and then they get isolated, uh, they get angry, they get bitter, uh, and they get depressed. They get withdrawn, uh, they might start drinking. And at some point that person looks in the mirror, lays in their bed, looking at the ceiling at three in the morning and starts to realize this isn't what I wanted and this isn't who I wanted to be. And depending on how far that person has gone down that path, it might be overwhelming to consider coming back from that path. And uh, how do they do that? How do they find themselves again? Uh, and unfortunately for a lot of people, they either leave medicine or you know, uh, become depressed or suicidal or, or turn to substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is new in modern medicine or are we just more vocal about it now? This concept of, of, all, of feeling burnt out. I think that's a, it's probably a lot of elements to, to the explanation for that. I think one of them might be sort of a unrealistic expectation that people have of themselves that um, they can do it all and have it all. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone told me during medical school that you can't have it all, and the sooner you realize that, the happier you're going to be. And I think that there are aspects that in medicine uh, you're going to have to give up aspects of yourself and aspects of the things that you used to like to do because medicine's busy, and there's a, a big time component to that. But if you always feel angry about that or bitter about that or think, no, I can do it all, I can have it all, or you start looking around you and thinking that 
everyone else seems to have it all together. Why don't I? Everyone else seems to be doing more than I'm doing. Why not me? What um, I should be doing that too. I think that sort of leads people into a, dis- a little bit of despair. And there's there's something to be said about you know social media being aspects of it, but it's been a problem forever. Um, go back 40, 50 years, Better Homes and Gardens magazines or Vogue magazines mm-hmm. showing pictures of people's lives and what they were doing. And, you know, there were people who felt, why not me? Why don't I have that? Why don't I look like that? Why isn't that my lifestyle? And I think that it's not, it's, that that's a endless um, sink of uh, uh, despair at some point if you start always trying to compare yourself to what you think everybody else's life is without really knowing what's going on in their lives. Yeah. I I definitely notice that with myself. I, I one of the things I have to constantly remind myself with like my friends who are currently in their careers and they're already kind of, you know, establishing life, you know, and it's definitely seems with medicine you kind of put things on pause, you know, you, you're not actually making any any sort of it seems like you're not making progress towards your career goals and, you know, family life and all that fun not fun well, it is fun <laughs> stuff, but you know, the important stuff, right? And and I have to remind myself that, you know, when you're scrolling on Instagram or Facebook, this is the curated life. And this is not this is not the ugly things that take place. These are only like the pretty things. But yeah, I, I agree. And and to me, honestly, sometimes I have to just like turn it off and just put it away and remind myself that this is what I want it. This is I'm happy to be here and this is a, a really important part of who I am, right? Yeah, and I think the other thing that's important, I think, with burnout and wellness is it's realizing that the individual has uh, probably the biggest role in maintaining themselves and anything else. And I think a lot of people wait for the organization or the institution or something to save them. But A, no one really knows what you're going through in your own head and what your frustrations are about it. And, and B, unless you take steps to sort of maintain yourself, um, and focus on the important aspects of sort of what make you you and what are the things that you consider important in your life. You never build that foundation. And if you don't build that foundation, it doesn't matter what they give you or throw at you or try to make things better with having a breakfast or a free coffee machine somewhere or something like that. That's not ultimately going to make you happy. What's going to make you happy is finding meaning and purpose in what you do mm-hmm. and connection with others. Yeah. yeah, we've had that discussion um, even starting in medical school because sometimes students will ask like, "What is what resources is the school providing me to help deal with these these feelings?" And the reality is, students need to learn to develop their own strategies, their own resources to help deal with this, and then carry that forward into their career. The hard part about that is telling people who are struggling that they're the problem, right? And mm-hmm. that doesn't uh, go over well, and it only makes them feel more mm-hmm. helpless. So there are a certain amount of resources that I think people need to have with it. And if anything, I think. Um, all these conversations about wellness and burnout uh, have at least allowed conversations to occur and uh, made the topic more open to discuss. And I think that has helped a lot of people. I think that the a lot of people who go into this interest uh, do so a little bit of on a, on a self-preservation type mode, or they've gotten themselves to the point where they've been burned out and they've come back and truly burned out, like where they started being clinically depressed and left medicine or what those are the people who you know really uh, got burned out and then kind of pulled themselves back from it but I think a lot of people also go into it and probably myself included where you realize that you're sliding a little bit on that continuum and you're kind of doing things or thinking about things in a way that you didn't want to be back when you went into medical school and part of that sort of recipe to keep yourself well is that regular reflection on uh who you are, what you're doing, and where you're going. And every once in a while when you stop and think a little bit about 
the direction you're going or the way you're thinking about things or where your emotional state is, you find yourself starting to drift, you got to take ownership of it and you got to figure out, wait a minute, I don't want to go this way. How do I not continue down this path and keep myself more centered? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of an interesting concept because I feel like with, for me, this, this is a huge blind spot. Like I, and I, and I think this is like probably 95% of the, the population where you just don't, it's not something that you can readily see in yourself. Um, but I think, you know, I can spot it in someone else. <laughs> you know, I can say like, oh man, they look like they're burned out. Like they're just struggling with something like this. And I think it's, it's a very subtle difference between stress versus burnout, right? Like they're, like you said, it's a spectrum, right? And I, I really appreciate what you said about the reflection. Do you think there are other ways that you can kind of identify, kind of preempt or, or see in yourself when this is happening? Yeah, I think burnout really is, um, a little bit like being an alcoholic. You don't mm-hmm. realize you're an alcoholic. You think you're covering it up and no one else can see that you've got a problem with drinking, for instance. And then I think once, for a lot, for many people, once that sort of external uh, reflection comes back at them uh, through their peers or their mentors or their boss, that they don't seem right, that they seem off. Or maybe even, you know, I think one very big symptom of burnout is uh, lapses in professionalism. And I think that when people start to get called on the carpet for behavioral issues or uh, acting out or, or interactions with patients um, that are unprofessional. There needs to be an ownership in recognizing that um, at some point it's not everybody else at the problem. At some point it's you that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody is not being called into the chief of staff's office. Everybody is not being put on disciplinary action. Everybody is not being told that what they did was concerning that you are and that you need to own that. And, and, you know, denial is very, very real. And like I said, with alcoholism, it's very real. Uh, people deny it forever um, until the proverbial hitting rock bottom. And then they have to sort of uh, rebuild themselves with that. And burnout has elements of that. I'm not saying burnout's the same thing as alcoholism, but it's the same sort of process, I think, with sort of that uh, slope or that spectrum. It starts off very uh, innocuous and mild, and then it becomes more pervasive, and then all of a sudden it's controlling uh, the way you see things and how you act. I think that's uh, self-awareness is probably the, the key to keeping yourself out of this. And that's where I get frustrated sometimes about, like you're saying, is everyone's saying, well, what do you have in this for me to keep me well? And you turn back around and say, well, what are you doing to take inventory of yourself regularly and make sure you are going in the direction that you want to go? Besides self-inventory, is there anything else that's kind of a preemptive thing that you can kind of do? You know, I think that as you choose things in your life, as you make decisions about what you want to allow into your life and what you want it to take time uh, in your day, um, making sure that those things are consistent with who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't take that time to uh, inventory that every once in a while, you may not know who you are as a person or what you're really looking for. So, you know, one of your questions in there is, uh, you know, how do you find a career path or how do you find a, a way to go in your career? How do you say yes to things and which to find you on a path. I think that if if things come your way throughout life, whether it be a person, whether it be a hobby, whether it be a career opportunity, making sure that it fits into who you are and doesn't violate sort of a core belief or tenant that you have about the type of person that you want to become mm-hmm. is important because then you pick things for the right reasons. Otherwise, you just get distracted in a bunch of different things and you lose focus. So almost developing like a, a personal mission statement that kind of travels with you and maybe even evolves over time or yes yeah is there anything someone can do to try to evaluate um hospitals or a program's 
culture of resiliency when they're deciding whether to apply there for residency or to apply there for a job? Is there something that you would recommend someone do to see, talk to somebody about it? What kind of questions would you ask? Yeah, that's tough. So when you go to look for, when you go to apply for residency, you're going to do interviews. And interviews are a tremendous drain on resources, financial resources for programs uh, to bring in hundreds of people each year to interview and feed them and, and the amount of lost time for faculty to interview and the amount of lost time for students to fly places and, and interview there and buying suits to go interview and everything else. And But the reality is until you actually walk into a place and meet with people, you don't know what you're getting yourselves into. And the same thing goes for the people that you're interviewing with. So the, the reason that we have you come for an interview is to see what type of a person are you in having a conversation because it's remarkable throughout the years to see uh, how many people have surprised you after an interview that you didn't expect from their personal statement or their dean's letter or whatnot. And the same thing goes true for when you go to interview somewhere and you kind of walk into a place and you see the people that you're working with. What's the personality like? How engage those people in what they're doing do they seem to be enjoying themselves are these real people that you're talking to or do they are they awkward uh, in the interview are they uncomfortable are they someone that you can relate to so the interview day is really your paramount thing to utilize to figure out if this is something that's going to feel comfortable for you or not or is going to be the environment that's going to help you flourish or not so obviously like you picked Loyola. And you've mentioned that it had resonated with you, right? Obviously, with your faith and your personal uh, religious practice. How has that played into how you work with patients and how you incorporate that aspect into your, your I keep saying practice, but <laughs> your <Sure>. medical <laughs> assessment of patients? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I think that there's a lot of talk these days about people being spiritual, but not necessarily being part of a faith. Uh, or an organized faith. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously a lot of that I think is is due to the fact that organized faiths have let a lot of people down and have gone directions that have hurt people and been very disappointing to followers. But I think the danger of being individually spiritual or reflective uh, without being part of a bigger group is that sometimes you can become a little narrow in your scope uh, or your perspective. And I think one of the benefits of coming together as a community is that you can hear other people's ideas uh, and maybe you get involved in things more external than maybe you would be willing to do as an introvert or more individual. And and I guess where, I mean, everyone goes through faith crises in their life. That's a normal part of your faith. If you don't take time to study your faith, it's probably not worth professing that faith. And that's a big statement to make, but um, you can't accept a ready-made faith that someone hands to you. So you have to sort of own it. And one aspect of, you know, I think of Christianity or Catholic faith is sort of that faith in in action. And without actually doing it in action, I think you, you may not see the bigger picture or recognize the calling of it. So for me, um, getting a, being able to utilize my faith outside of myself and as a sort of a very rigid introvert um it's not something that comes natural uh for me but to um to be involved in service aspects of my faith to be involved in going out to soup kitchens or poor neighborhoods or uh working with my patients in their turf um, rather than in my doctor's office is a really very rewarding aspect of faith and one that i think ultimately um 
sort of uh, bolsters myself uh, from a calling or vocation standpoint. So when I go out to a neighborhood uh, and see people very close to where we're sitting right now at a, at a you know, soup kitchen with Catholic Charities uh, and we're, you know, we're doing a meal there or we're at a, at a health fair, um, and you talk to them there in, your, in their neighborhood and, what, and you see them there and you hear about their problems and you see their realities, it changes your perspective on stuff. Example, uh, I have a girl that I've taken care of now since she was about nine. She's got sort of, a, and she's in her 20s now, um, difficult uh, neuromuscular uh, disease and really sort of an incurable one, but very mentally with it normal person. Um, however, has struggled with this physical limitation for, for her whole life such that, you know, when she was nine and stuff, uh, started getting progressively weaker, loss of muscle, and has gone to high school and drives a car and went to prom uh, and now is in college and has uh, was in college and now has a job. And doing all of that well, she carries her ventilator around on a luggage cart uh, that's duct taped there uh, and that allows her to breathe and walk around. And I guarantee you she's the only kid walking around high school with a ventilator that she's carrying around with her. And you can only imagine the emotional strain that puts on a teenager going through uh, life automatically feeling awkward as a teenager, let alone with all the medical problems um, that she has. So worked with her for got going on 20 some years now. And uh, one day being at, at one of the Catholic Charities outreaches that we do, uh, it was the day before Thanksgiving. And uh, this lady started kind of like waving from the room. And I was like, oh, okay. So someone's kind of waving at maybe someone I've met before here. And then I walked up to her and I realized I was this girl's mother. And this other, then, then the, my patient was there as well. And for me to see them there in that environment uh, was interesting. Um, because uh, not only had she gone every, gone through everything she'd gone through with her life, with her medical problems and her social problems and her health problems, but the reality was is that, that she's poor, and she's very poor, and she's at a, a food pantry with her mother on the day before Thanksgiving um, having a meal. And does that change around the way you see your patients when they show up in your office? Absolutely. Do you become more tolerant when your patients are late? Yeah. Why? Because they took three buses to get to your appointment, right? Um, and it's not about you. And I think that's what faith really kind of helps you understand. I'm going to use a line that others have heard me say that, that I will give credit to a peer, friend, um, mentor of mine, John Forsyth, who's a pulmonary critical care doctor. He's got a wonderful uh, way of speaking. And he has said that there are three phases of internship or residency. And I think in a bigger picture, there's also three phases to life, but uh, in a narrow scope for a second with residency, uh, in that you feel your first phase is that everybody is there just to help you. So the only reason that your program director woke up that day and came to work was because they've been planning all day for that meeting that they're going to have with you at 10 o'clock, and they've got nothing else going on today except meeting with you at 10 o'clock. And the only reason that the coordinator is there is to welcome you to that office and then She's got, you know, your picture on her desk smiling, and that's the person that she's living to please that day to show up and meet with the program director. And then after you leave, their day is just terrible because now you're not part of their day anymore. And then relatively quickly, you go through the second phase uh, where you start to think that everybody is there just to hurt you. The only reason that your attending goes to clinic each day is to admit patients to your service because you're on call today. And the only reason that that person has chest pain at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're working is they waited for you to come on work so that they could bother you and start complaining of chest pain. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people get stuck in that second phase kind of forever, mm -hmm. um, that everything that happens in their life is 
a personal attack, a personal assault, the patient's late, and that's messing up your day, and and you kind of carry that with you all the time. And then I think at some point, hopefully, you reach the third phase where you realize it's never been about you. It's always been about taking care of the patients. And I think if you can get to that point, you're going to be much happier with what you do. And we all lapse in and out of phase two and three pretty regularly. But the more time I think you live in phase three, the happier you're going to be with your life when you realize that it's not a personal assault, that it's not everything's against you, that there's a bigger picture in the world with why things happen. Uh, and keeping that perspective uh, has been one of the things that I think working with my faith or with Catholic Charities has really kind of helped me to do. And I think if I not, didn't have that sort of um, external outlet, kind of redundant, ex- that external manifestation of my faith with being out in service, I probably wouldn't have come to those conclusions about why that bigger picture is so important in maintaining your own resiliency. Yeah, that's something that I've struggled with as a student. We know that we're here with the ultimate goal of caring for patients, but right now when we don't know anything and we can't do anything, it feels like we're just sucking the resources out of everything. I go to go to a clinic and I have to practice a physical exam on a patient, but I'm not helping them at all by running through this physical exam when I don't even know what I'm looking for and what I'm doing. So as a student, you really can feel like you're never going to get to that point where you're going to be contributing and giving back. But through service, that's something that we already can do. Yeah, there's a great poem by a, written by a Jesuit priest uh, called Patient Trust that talks about the importance of being patient in your process that you're doing right now and your development and that everyone wants to be at the end of the journey. Everyone wants to have that skill set or that ability. But the reality is, is that you have to trust in the process you're going through. Um, And as this priest says it and trust in God in that process, that there's a reason that you're going through what you're going through. And there's a reason that you're going through that phase of not knowing what you're doing and having to be mentored in every aspect of what you're doing because you're developing skills that you will use down the road to get to that journey mm-hmm. over time. Not being impatient is the difficult part. Mm-hmm. Especially when we're on such a long road, it feels like we're never going to get there. Yeah. What about the moments when your faith is maybe challenged a little bit with you know, patient circumstances or... Um, because medicine is it's, it's an emotionally taxing calling right like there are instances where you're constantly challenged and put in pers- or, uh, put in positions of vulnerability and all, all, just everything that kind of comes with 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 not the job <laughs> the, the profession so how do you how do you approach that fortunately i don't think i've had that i think my faith has allowed me uh, a perspective i think with tragedy that I don't know if I would have had without it. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, you know, the biggest challenge to your faith as a physician is actually having the time to dedicate to doing something with it. So I think that's a hard part, but I really haven't had, uh, fortunately, a time where it's made me doubt my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's ever been that occur. If anything, reflecting on what you go through in the course of a day, really, um, and if you do that in a way where you come, come at it in the, with the right mind frame, it actually deepens your faith. So I, yeah, I've I've actually found uh, that my career or my profession um, has actually deepened my spiritual life. You've mentioned Catholic Charities. Could you explain for our listeners who might not know um, what Catholic Charities is and what's the work they do and what is your involvement with them? So Catholic Charities is a it's a volunteer run organization that exists everywhere, all over. Um, that works with people in their communities in their settings 
uh, works with people where they are. Um, so it, uh, it helps them provide resources, whether it be clothes for a job interview or assistance with counseling or food pantries or just outreach opportunities to sort of help people become what they need to become. It, it, there's, yes, there's financial resources and yes, there's you know, physical resources with food or clothing or shelter or those type of things. But I think more so it's um, helping people develop uh, an opportunity and uh, an availability for them to lift themselves uh, up and assist them in that process to get to where they need to be. So it, it's, um, it's a nice organization um, in that it's sort of faith in action and it's very practical. And that's kind of, and it's very, and it's hands-on, uh, which I think is nice. I think financial resources, yes, absolutely donate money. That's very important because everyone needs resources. But to actually get into a community and meet people in those communities and see what their reality is, I think really makes you understand limitations uh, that you have in fixing anyone's problems. And uh, ultimately, I think sometimes the best fix is just helping others work through their problems. Mm-hmm. What's the role of medicine within the work that they do? So there's a bunch of different sort of sub-boards with Catholic Charities, and um, our group is the medical outreach group that I work with, so I can speak to that. But that is a lot of the health fairs and a lot of the health education that we do in communities, at parish centers, uh, at churches, outreaches. I just got our dates for the summer health fairs as well. So and we'll see about 800 people at those and uh, provide medical screenings and health exams and health advice. Um, and even in our monthly outreaches that we do at uh, parishes where we do sort of suppers or we do um, just counseling sessions, whether it be on diet control for diabetes or, or hypertension or appropriate cancer screening or medication reconciliation where the patients or the parishioners just bring in their medications and we go through what they're taking and why they're taking it. Those, uh, that just providing that little bit of health education, I think, really helps people to, again, address them where they are, but help them to understand the importance of uh, why you're addressing these things with them. As an organization, do they have, like, how do they allocate where they're spending their resources? Do they determine, say, okay, we want to tackle this specific issue? This is something that we're, like, very passionate about, that whether it be... I don't know, like diabetes or something like that. They say, okay, we're going to specifically set up clinics to screen for patients and we're going to talk, we're going to do nutrition classes and we're going to do this. Or how do they determine where they actually want to, you know, spend their time and resources? Yeah, I don't know. This might be one of those things where I'm not, I don't know if I can give you enough insight into mm-hmm. that one. So it might not be worth I know that one of the things that we're talking about is the social determinants of health right now uh, with one of uh, the outreaches that we do with addressing uh, medical literacy with type 2 diabetes specifically, and actually then working with the food pantry to make sure that we're stocking things there that are more friendly with diabetics. And I know that even in our involvement at St. Blaise and Summit, we've done a lot with even just changing around the meals that are ordered. When we first started over there, um, the meals were really, really, really carb heavy. I mean, it was like, here's your spaghetti and meatballs, and there's french fries, and there's like a cake, and like, is there a vegetable anywhere? <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> yeah, so we've definitely kind of um, worked with making the meals a little more well-rounded for that. Mm-hmm. So as students, something that we think a lot about is how in the world do you decide what field, what type of uh, medicine you want to go into? So how did you decide what you do? Uh, I think when you are in your third year, you should approach every single rotation as something you might want to do. And when you're in that rotation, if very quickly you realize that's not what you want to do, you should say, I'm going to get as much out of this rotation as I can because it's the last time that someone's ever going to formally teach me this again. Mm -hmm. So the reason you go to medical school is to make you 
well-rounded when you go into your field uh, so that you have some background to draw from different disciplines uh, and how you approach your patients because very few things exist as a discipline in a vacuum. There's a lot of interaction between different disciplines in what you do. So some training in each of those things is going to help make you a more rounded physician. Um, ultimately, I liked uh, pretty much everything I did in my third year, uh, and ultimately it became it came down to medpeds, which arguably is two things, um, and then surgery were the two things that I really was applying for in the beginning of my fourth year, and really just sort of just came down to figuring out what I really wanted and what I wanted to go into uh, and what I really enjoyed about each of those two disciplines um, to kind of help me figure out which way to go with it. And I don't think it was ever a 90-10% conversation. I think, if anything, it was always more of a 51-49% type <laughs> conversation about why I ended up choosing one thing over another. Um, but ultimately, I think that it's it's been great. I think, you know, MedPeds, what's MedPeds? It's a four-year residency where it distills sort of two three-year programs, internal medicine uh, and pediatrics, into a four-year program. When you finish, your, you take both sets of boards. So you take internal medicine boards and you take pediatric boards, and then you practice different aspects of it. Um, most people end up doing some sort of combined uh, internal medicine and pediatric specialty. I do outpatient clinic, and I also attend inpatient on both. Some people uh, just do inpatient. Uh, some people choose to do a specialty where they maybe go one direction, like maybe just do adult interventional cardiology. But most people will do sort of combined fellowships where they'll do like uh, congenital heart disease, or they'll do diabetes care in endocrinology, or they'll go into pulmonary critical care and do cystic fibrosis, or do uh, peds hemonc as a fellowship and then focus in survivorship for survivors of pediatric cancers. So there's a lot of different options available available to you with, that were available to me with MedPeds. So that's why I chose that. I'm not trying to sell MedPeds. That's why I chose MedPeds. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, but again, this comes down to knowing who you are and what you want and what uh, what you're passionate about. And, and if it's something that you really, really enjoy, figure out how to uh, do some maybe electives here or there in that uh, to see if it's what you really want to go into. Is there anything that you wish that you would have known going into your residency? You'd probably just stay the course, uh, trying not to get frustrated. Like you said before, the, the desire to sort of be done uh, is is really a strong desire. Um, but the reality is, is after medical school, you're not particularly trained to do much of anything except sit in one spot for a long period of time and study. (laughs) And um, residency really trains you for that. And I think that you can approach residency two ways. You can approach residency and sort of curl up uh, and just sort of hunker down and just try to get through it. Or you can just kind of throw yourself into it and say, hey, you know what, this is my opportunity to see sick people, to really get pushed and do so in an environment in which I'm supported. Probably I think the, it, uh, I, I tried to live by this uh, once I came out of my dark place about a year into residency. Everyone goes through a dark place and then they, hopefully they come out of it. But um, sort of that reality of I'm going to expose myself to as much, as many difficult situations as I can right now during residency um, and even beyond because ultimately that's how you grow. And you can try to skirt an admission or try to just push someone through uh, hospitalization. Um, but the more you allow yourself to take a difficult patient or to be involved in a, in a code or a procedure or a particular surgery, the more, and that even though it's going to take a lot of your time and you're going to be tired afterwards, you're going to leave that being better than you were before you went into it. So try to keep that perspective 
and that you want to be pushed. You want a difficult experience as a resident because residency goes way faster than medical school. And before you know it, you're done. And before you know it, someone says, doctor, what do you want to do? And you look around and try to figure out who they're talking to. And all of a sudden you realize that they're talking to you and you're supposed to make that decision. And if you didn't allow yourself opportunities to be busy and to be challenged during residency, you're not going to be uh, as competent when you're on your own than if you had allowed yourself those opportunities. And you work in the outpatient setting now? Yeah, I've, throughout the years I've worked inpatient, outpatient, uh, urgent cares, uh, moonlighted in a bunch of ERs as well. So just kind of a, a smattering of stuff. What are some of the challenges that you found working in um, outpatient primary care? Has it been different than when you're inpatient, different types of challenges? It's just different challenges. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure different thing entirely. Yeah, I mean, it, ultimately charting callbacks uh, are probably the biggest challenges you have in outpatient, making sure that you're keeping on top of your labs and you're touching base with your patients after you've seen them. There's definitely a time commitment to trying to get in touch with people. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how many people have non-functioning phone numbers uh, in the EMR that you've called everyone on that list of their primary, secondary number, emergency contact, and some other number that's listed in there, and you still can't get in touch with a number that actually works. Uh, so that can be frustrating sometimes. Um, but I think no matter what you do, there's going to be little frustrations here and there. Mm-hmm. Those are the logistical things that we don't really think about when we're in school because we're just taught this is how you treat the patient. You don't really think about the realities of that you have to get in touch with them. You have to make sure that they can get access to everything that they need. Right, and trying not to allow yourself to get overly frustrated with those things mm-hmm. is important because it's just part of daily life. And mm-hmm. if you get too bogged down in it, then you start to overly personalize it about why is this happening to me, mm-hmm. you, you kind of end up in that despair cycle again. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you see from like other colleagues or professionals that you, when you see it, you just kind of cringe and you're like, oh man, that's, I, I don't agree right there. It doesn't have to necessarily be uh, practice. It could be like professionalism or anything really. Yeah, I think professionalism is probably it because uh, for, for many people, the underlying problem with that is sort of a, a personal wellness issue. And we all go through it. We all have times where we snap at people or we get frustrated. Or, um, But hopefully as you get older, you learn to control yourself a little bit better or you realize maybe that was not appropriate. Um, and then ultimately it, it's probably hurtful uh, for you to act that way towards somebody. And it, really it just takes a lot of time. And you, to get to that point where you, don't, where you can see yourself at a, at a big picture level and from the outside, and it takes uh, a certain degree of maturity to not look at a negative comment as an attack. Uh, I think we all uh, struggle with seeing 100 comments about ourselves, uh, 99 of which are fantastic, and one is mediocre or negative, and not dwelling on that one comment that's mediocre or negative. But I think when you get to the point where you can kind of look at that comment and say, oh, okay, I guess I can kind of understand what that person was thinking, and maybe I can change that. I mean, the other reality is that person might just be completely off base and totally wrong with what they're saying about you in the first place. But Maybe there might be a kernel of truth in there somewhere. So trying to find that's important and, and trying to recognize that there are 99 other comments that say you're doing a pretty good job. So maybe take that other one and say, okay, I can see that. Let me see if I can tweak that a little bit. Um, what do you think that students need to understand better in terms of like going forward? That they're going to work hard, that they need to work hard. So Ralph Leishner was uh, uh, the dean when I was a, well, he was a faculty member and then eventually became the dean when I was a student here. Dr. Leishner did an amazing job of, he was a pathologist, uh, and gave some of the best lectures. But I think what he did more than anything else was that he made you really respect the profession that you just signed up for. And I always say that there's something to be 
I like to teach a little bit by uh, fear and intimidation. And what I mean by that is you're supposed to be afraid of the amount of stuff that you don't know and the amount of requirements that are placed on you. And you should be intimidated by the magnitude of what you're getting yourself into in medicine uh, and the uh, importance of your profession in medicine. Those should be very intimidating thoughts and the amount you need to know. But they shouldn't paralyze you. They should motivate you. Because I think when you get when you stop being afraid or stop being intimidated in a good sense with those words, you become complacent. And I think when you get complacent, you can get lazy, you can get a little overly comfortable with your knowledge. So you have to keep doing things all the time that help assuage that uh, fear and intimidation in your own heart of, gosh, I don't know everything, or those journals are really starting to pile up, I really need to get to them, or I need to get to that conference because I need to hear that talk because I still don't feel quite comfortable, or I just saw a patient, I'm not entirely sure what's going on, I need to go read about that so I can make sure I'm making the right decision uh, to help take care of them. That's an important thing to have. And I think when you can keep that, that perspective in there about the reality of the profession that you're in um, beyond it being a job, I think that's the thing that's hard for anybody in medicine, but particularly students, I think, sometimes to realize because you're just focused at the next hurdle, you're focused on the next test, you're focused on the next paper you got to write or whatever, without seeing that there's a big picture for why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be anxious. But do something about it and figure out how... And you never, and that, that's the, kind of the cool thing and sort of the frustrating thing about medicine in general is that you're never going to have it figured out. And that's probably life in general, but you're never going to have it figured out. But each day you have the opportunity to try to get a little better at what you're doing. And that's, that's kind of fun in a way. Yeah, I've been told before that it's okay to, be, to feel afraid of something and be nervous about something because that means that it's important to you. And it means that you know that you might not be where you want to be in, in that area. And so you, it's something that you need to be able to focus on and, re- like you said, not be afraid of it and let, it, let that paralyze you, be afraid of it and let that motivate you. Correct. What qualities would you say that you look for when you're picturing like your ideal resident or student? What are the things that you're just like, man, that stands out to me? You have to be a hard worker. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be intellectually curious. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to communicate and get along with others. And hopefully you can uh, see the bigger picture with what, with why you're doing what you're doing. It's, it's easy to, relatively easy to work with um, cognitive issues. But when you've got someone who's maybe a little arrogant uh, or someone who's kind of lazy or who's going into this uh, for the wrong reason, those are hard people to reach because arguably some of those people can actually be dangerous with taking care of patients um, because they're overly comfortable with what, with not admitting that they don't know. And uh, those are the ones who can cause damage. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can uh, transition to this last little bit because this is a kind of an interesting aspect of you. You are a physician couple, right? Mm-hmm. Did you meet your wife here at Loyola or... No. Uh, so, uh, well, there's probably two stories. Uh, okay. One of them uh, would be either I met her because I was dating her cousin at one point, oh. or the <laughs> other one is that um, I met her when I was delivering pizzas and she was working at a gas station. <laughs> Sounds like are, both great stories. Both are true. <laughs> um, uh, re-met her after we had met at a common uh, dinner party uh, where we were there with our respective dates um, that night. And um, then about uh, half a year or so or a year later, I was delivering pizzas. I delivered pizzas until about halfway through my intern year uh, and uh, ended up running into her when she was working at a gas station overnight. 
um, and just realized, oh, we met before at, at this dinner party. And she's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, okay. And we just started talking. And then we'd have to go in at the end of each night to, you know, gas your trucks up at the end of the night that we were delivering with. Um, and just kept talking. And then eventually just got to started going out and hanging out and stuff like that. So very cool. Yeah. What are, uh, what are some of the struggles that are kind of unique to a physician couple? I think time mm-hmm. uh, is probably the biggest one. Realizing that you have to work as a team much more, not than you thought, but maybe more than others do in that realizing that um, sort of traditional roles in marriage are extraordinarily blurred with, with medicine um, because um, a lot of times it's damage control, who's picking up food, who's picking up the kids, who's going to make the dinner, who's, who's going to do laundry, who's going to get all the stuff rolling. Like you just have to work together to get stuff done. I think the, uh, the benefit of it is, uh, is that you understand each other a little bit when, with regards to stress so you don't get frustrated by late nights or phone calls during dinner or feeling overwhelmed with stuff or just needing to vent about stuff. You feel that you can more, relate to that more. You know, my wife's extraordinarily motivating by the person she is, not by, because of anything she says, but because of the person she is. She's wicked smart. She's wicked motivated and driven, way more organized than I'll ever be. So just a really inspirational person to have uh, as a partner. So I think that's that's been very helpful uh, in medicine for both of us, I think. Uh, we push each other a lot. Our journal pile, she's internal medicine. So we push each other a lot. Our journal pile uh, that accumulates on our kitchen counter, we attack pretty regularly. One of the best things, we do a lot of vacations to Disney as well, um, and uh, probably more so than is humanly normal to do. <laughs> and uh, one of our favorite things about our Disney trips is the time in the plane back and forth, and uh, that we'll bring a bunch of journals with us, and we'll sit across from each other in the airplane, and we'll, we'll read journals, we'll sign off on them when we're done and hand them back and forth. And uh, sort of the emotional cathartic period of actually dumping them into the recycling bin at the airport and the sound that it makes <laughs> when you dump a huge chunk of journals into the recycling bin, it's pretty cool. But ultimately, uh, it is that pushing each other to read more, and um, it's ultimately important to do to keep growing as a physician, right? So you, you read more, you pick something up, you maybe pick something you didn't read before or validate something that you're already doing um, or a review article that, you know, speaks to certain cancer screening uh, things that you're doing. And uh, you're like, oh, yeah, I need to tweak that a little bit. Or, oh, good, I'm glad I'm still doing that because that's what this journal says I should still be doing, so I'm glad I'm in the right direction. But that pushing each other, I think, is, is very, very helpful. So it's been very, knock on wood, very successful for us to be a married couple uh, who are both physicians. But it definitely makes you see things maybe differently than you had as traditional roles growing up with marriage and your own parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that's all the questions we had for you today, but is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know, like any last messages or anything like that, that you just, you don't have to have them, but sometimes people are like, you know what, people do this. <laughs> no, I think no. pretty much everything we went through. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Rosario. Yeah, it's been awesome. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.